From the FAY point here in Balch Springs, Texas, this is Resonant Frequency, the Amateur Radio Podcast. Welcome once again to Resonant Frequency, the Amateur Radio Podcast. My name is Richard, KB5JBV, and I am your host. Thank you all for downloading us this time around. Uh, we're a little late. Things have been kind of hectic. I do apologize. Just remember that this is an amateur operation uh, for amateur radio, and uh, we're going we're gonna to continue to do the best we can. I was taking a look at the Frapper map uh, here today, uh, there are currently 1,320 members on the Frapper map. Y'all keep it up. One thing I do need to let y'all know is when you're signing up for the Frapper map, please put your call sign in the name field or the shout out field so that I know uh, what your call signs are because we're getting more and more people with just a first name and that's it. So, let's start at the top. Let's say hello to WB4BQW, Bob, in Apopka, Florida, K9FRZ, Jerry, in Lake Forest, California, KB3QKK, who didn't put a name in, in Baltimore, Maryland, and then all the rest I was able to pick out, and y'all have to excuse me, it's getting kind of full over there, so I, if I missed you, let me know, and we'll catch you next time around. Alan in Oakland, New Jersey. Lee in Sandy Springs, Georgia. Ray in Fairfax, Virginia. Gary in Mustang, Oklahoma. Barry in Mon- Monmouth Junction, New Jersey. Noel in Moberly, Missouri. Lawrence in Mobile, Alabama. And I got a piece of email from Lawrence. I'll get to it in a minute. Liz in Covington, Washington. Bill in Gainesville, Florida. The two Ians, one in Beckley, Virginia, and one in Roswell, Georgia. And George in Jackson, Mississippi. And thank you, and if I missed you, like I said, send me an email, kb5jbv at gmail.com, and we'll get you on the list next time around. Uh, For those of y'all joining us uh, in progress, as it were, uh, go on over and sign up at the Frapper Map. You can find a link to it over uh, at the blog page. That's kb5jbv dot blogspot dot com and I try and keep the frapper map up towards the top of the page occasionally it falls off if you can't find it up at the top go look down towards the bottom and please put your call sign along with your name on the frapper map when you sign up okay let's move to emails I only got one this time around y'all It says, Dear Richard, thanks for the podcast. I stumbled upon it last week in my endeavor to see what was going on with the new licenses. Ham radio has been an interest of mine since I was attacked. 
I used to sit up in the shack with a fellow in my hometown when I was in grade school. He was a college student and took shine to me. I learned code, studied, but was never able to test. Later in college, I was able to get involved with the station at school. Our sponsor was K3RDX, Bill Ryan. I am amazed that I can remember that call sign all these years later. They kind of stick like glue after a while. At least 22 of them. I think he is in your neck of the woods. Well, I have to look him up. Bill Ryan. Financial considerations and a heavy course load prevented me from testing then. Now I'm 43. I've really got the bug, so I'm hoping to test soon. Again, financial considerations may prevent me from getting a rig anytime soon. But dang it, I want a ticket. And he also writes, I have a question. Is the ARRL book for the general class inclusive of the material needed for the technician test? I would like to go ahead and take the general so that I can do some more HF work. But if I have to, I can take the tech. I think that other, other than the new frequencies and such, I could pass the uh, tech test but would like to make sure. And that's signed, Lawrence, in Mobile, Alabama. Well, Lawrence, thank you for your email. And let me let me address a couple things fairly quick. The test has changed considerably over the years, and I've, I've already sent an email out, so most of this is in there. The, test is, the uh, tech test has changed considerably over the years. It is now the entry-level license. The general class and the tech test, even though it was 20-something years ago, they were the same license. They are not the same license anymore. And, yes, there is a separate test for the tech and the general, and the ARRL books will only cover one test. But, as I said in the email, uh, you may go over to qrz.com or hamtestsonline.com, I think it is, and take practice tests and see how up on what's going on you are. And you may very well see by taking those tests that you already have enough knowledge to go ahead and pass. The other side of it is if you don't have enough knowledge acquired for the two tests right now, um, you can. Uh, there are also places, or always have been places, where you can download the question pool online. Now, I don't want to take any money away from the ARRL. I'm a member over there, and if they don't make their money other ways, the the dues go up, even though they haven't gone up in a long time. And uh, but I can't see anybody spending twenty something dollars for a book they're going to use for six weeks at the most. So. Uh, check out those options. Go over to Ham, go over to QRZ or uh, Ham. Uh, what is it? Ham tests online, and take some tests over there and see where you stand. Then you can examine your other options. I myself am a big fan of the question pool books simply because they. Uh, I'm the kind of person that that information loads in better in the form of the in the form of the actual questions on the test 
as opposed to reading 10 or 15 pages describing the answer to one or two questions. So with that, we'll move on out of the email. Just if y'all have any questions or suggestions or anything else, y'all let me know at kb5jbv at gmail.com. kb5jbv at gmail.com. Now, I understand the uh, last time around or possibly the time before I had a rant and had a little rant and y'all y'all seem to enjoy it because we we really got a lot of downloads on that episode but i really don't have anything to rant about this time but i do need to remind y'all that this this program is uh donation driven it's a i do it with my equipment in the radio room and i really appreciate all the donations that have come in over the past but we haven't been getting any in the last couple months and every penny, you know, every penny that comes in here covers server fees, equipment upgrades, that kind of stuff. And I know y'all probably can't tell it, but we've had equipment upgrades. Unfortunately, this is probably the first uh, episode of Resonant Frequency that has been recorded on three different machines uh, because we've been having a little bit of trouble with the machine I was recording the podcast on simply because the coax got back behind one of the cables on the computer and it killed uh, a large portion of the hard drive that was in there. So, y'all go over to the blog site, click that donate button, and send me a dollar. A dollar. If I, if all the guy, all of you that are signed up on the Frapper map would send one dollar we would be able to do massive upgrades here at Resonant Frequency, the Amateur Radio Podcast. Now, for the rest of you, the ones that uh, might not be able to, to do something in that direction, I am completely understanding. But I do, what I would like to remind you of is at the top of the blog page over at kb5jbv.blogspot.com, which is where the donation button is, there is also a place up there at the top of the page where you can click through to Amazon.com. Now, by clicking through to Amazon.com, if you're going over there to buy a book, a videotape, whatever, it doesn't have to have anything to do with amateur radio or anything else, but if you're going to purchase something over at Amazon.com, you can click through from that link and whatever you do decide to purchase over at Amazon, we will get uh, a percentage of that sale. Now, this is not a commercial for Amazon, and it won't cost you any extra money to click through from the blog page. We will. The deal is set up where we get, I think it's 4% of whatever sales that they generate by somebody clicking through from that link. So that's another way to help uh, help donate and support over here at Resident Frequency, the Amateur Radio Podcast. Okay, we've got uh, got a few things coming up. Oh yeah, I almost forgot. Let me. Uh, I want to throw out a uh, hello to everybody I, I shook hands with and talked with out there at the Irving Ham Fest this last week. We had a really great time. Uh, I went ahead and got some tables out there to sell off some equipment. We did extremely well. 
But I'd like to say uh, it was good to meet everybody who came by the table out at the Irvingham Fest. Some of you I stood there and talked with for quite a quite a considerable length of time. And unfortunately, some of you just eased by when I was covered up. But once again, it was great to be out there. It was great to see uh, you guys face to face, which doesn't happen a whole lot in radio, in amateur radio. But hey... It, it's the best thing, and I hope to see y'all again at at the very least out at Hamtom in Plano, Texas. All right, anything else before we move on? Um, I can't rightly think of much. I'm sure I'll think of it by the end. So with that, I guess we'll uh, we'll go ahead and uh, hush a minute. We'll get back with y'all after the break. This time around on segment formerly known as Budsworth, let's talk about simply our calling frequencies. Calling frequencies. That, uh, that's a concept that really doesn't get uh, as much airplay as it used to. You know, I was uh, looking around. It kind of came up because of uh, some recent events here locally. But it kind of came up. I got to digging around and found some pretty interesting things. Uh, over at Eham in their glossary, their amateur radio glossary, uh, under calling frequency, it says a standard frequency where stations attempt to contact each other. Example, 146.52 is the North American FM simplex calling frequency. Now, <clears throat> why do we need a calling frequency? Well, the way you're supposed to use a calling frequency is uh, you sit there and monitor the calling frequency, and if someone wants to talk to you, they go ahead and uh, give you a call on the calling frequency, and y'all make a rage arrangements to move off to another frequency to have your conversation. We find nowadays that on calling frequencies, they tend to be used as general rag chew frequencies, which I'm all for everybody rag chewing. Unfortunately, there are times when the calling frequency might need to be clear. Uh, tying down a frequency so others can't use it is 
never really been good amateur practice. Now, uh, in my looking around, uh, I found a website or a blog uh, written by K0NR, K0NR, Bob, and uh, he makes some good points on calling frequencies. Uh, up at the top, I and mean, you know, I'm not going to bore y'all with all of it. I'm, I picked a few highlights out. If y'all want to go take a look at it, it's over at www.k0nr.com/blog, and uh, I'm sure there's a blog spot address for it too, but I don't have that. Anyway, uh, some of the things he says is like, uh, "What frequency are you going to use to call CQ?" from your favorite high spot and he apparently one of these hilltop guys that likes to go get up on mountains make simplex contacts and uh, he's talking about most likely you're going to use 146.52 which is the uh, uh, like we said a while ago uh, it, by agreement it's the you it's the FM 2 meter calling frequency in the US you know, not a written rule, written in stone. Uh, it's a suggestion, and it's the way we've been using it for years. But one problem he says he runs into, and I find that myself on some frequencies, is that um, you might go to use the calling frequency and find that it's tied up with a QSO. And this is wonderful. You know, I'm all for people chit-chatting, rag-chewing on the on simplex uh, in fact i'm a big advocate of it but uh it's my understanding there's been kind of a stink here lately about uh, the fm calling frequency on or uh, one of the calling frequencies on six meters because people get on there and they'll have rag chew and keep the frequency locked down and uh, the guys that have been using six meters for years they kind of want to keep that frequency a little bit clear so they can monitor it and listen for weak uh, stations uh, especially DX, because there are a lot of a lot of countries that don't have a lot of six meter DX going on, and when one's in there, it's definitely a rare contact. Now I have a similar situation here, one forty six five two, here in the DFW Metroplex. There's a group of folks that uses one forty six five two for their uh, meeting up and rag chewing frequency. Well. That's all fine and good. They're able to hook up. That's the purpose of the calling frequency, but they keep it locked down for hours on end. And it's not just one or two stations. It's liable to be 8, 10, 12 stations on that frequency, all battling for uh, supremacy with their 50-watt radios and beam antennas and all that good stuff. And if somebody from out of town who's pretty likely to use that frequency to try and contact somebody if they need help, especially if they come from a place that's uh, reasonably rural, they're not going to be able to get in. We're guilty of the same thing on the repeaters. Uh, here in DFW, all the 2 meter and 70 centimeter pairs are in use. They are allocated for repeaters, and there is a repeater on every one of those pairs. So, yeah, a guy from out of town, he could probably get help on one of the repeaters, one of the hundreds of repeaters here locally, if, uh, A, he's can find one that uh, he can get into, he can locate the tone to access it, uh, he has enough power to, to hit it reasonably, 
and there's somebody listening to it. Because another point uh, Bob makes in his blog here that I, I agree with is the fact that, you know, if you've got a frequency that you monitor, that you leave on in your radio room all the time, kind of like I do. I've got a couple of them I leave on in here all the time. And there's always somebody on there talking and yakking and distracting you from what you're doing. You tend to turn the radio down or off. And uh, I kind of lost uh, the spot where it was in here. But the point he was making was, you know, if they're going to keep the frequency locked down, number one, nobody can use it. It's being monopolized. Number two, uh, more people don't want to listen to it, so they just kind of turn the volume down or whatever. Now, one of the ways he says we could probably combat this is that, uh, well, let me just read this paragraph here. The three-minute rule. There are two ways of making, to make a calling frequency useless. No one ever uses the calling frequency. That's number one. And number two, the calling frequency is always tied up due to a lengthy contact. So we need to encourage hams to monitor and use the calling frequency, but not monopolize it. We don't have to be extreme about it. Perhaps a three-minute rule of thumb. If I am in a contact with another station on a calling frequency for more than three minutes, it is time for me to change to a different frequency. This opens up the frequency for other hams to use. Just as important, it keeps long rag chew sessions away from the calling frequency. These long sessions have a tendency to discourage monitoring of 146.52 MHz. One ham recently told me that he tries to keep a receiver tuned to 5.2 for anyone just passing through the area that might need some help. But when some of the locals get on the frequency and, and chat for an hour, the radio gets turned off. So that's kind of important, and is a lot of people just don't think about it. And it's not intentional bad practice. It's just things that we've done for years and years. Sometimes uh, we don't pass the information along and let people know that this is why things are the way they are. So calling frequencies, we should really pay attention to them, do our best to keep them as clear as possible. And get out there and, and use them. Get out there and call your friends. You know, the last thing I'd like to say on that is at one time here uh, on the east side of Dallas County, back when I first got licensed, and y'all hear a lot about when I first got licensed, but uh, not only did we have 146.52, we had 146.42, 146.55, that were all very active uh, simplex frequencies where uh, a lot of folks hung out and just enjoyed themselves. You know, repeater operation? Repeater should be a calling frequency, however it's not. And uh, that's one of the, one of the, the, that's probably the only thing I'm going to say about this is, you know, repeaters have always been for uh, mobile, portable, and low-power operation. That's the reason they were developed. And unfortunately, we have the same problem on them that we have on the simplex calling frequencies as people just get on there and chat for hours and hours. So the next time somebody says calling frequency, y'all uh, y'all sit down and uh, discuss it with them. Y'all use them and uh, 
try and use them in a way to be uh, the most courteous hand you possibly can. So with that, I'd like to thank uh, K0NR for the majority of the content of this particular uh, segment formerly known as Bud's Buzzword. Go over and check out uh, his blog at www.k0nr.com. Stroke blog. And with that, we'll see y'all after the break. So this time around, let's talk about uh, DX Cluster. All right. The DX Cluster. For those of you who have been using them, I'm sorry about uh, bringing this in, but we've got so many new generals and, and that kind of thing coming along that we probably need to talk about the DX Cluster. I hear the guys here locally, uh, they'll see a little blurb on the internet or they'll catch an email from somebody and they just uh, lose their minds about letting everybody know that there's something special out there. You know, at this time, TX5C is operating out there in uh, uh, whatever toll they're operating on. And uh, there's been multiple emails on the news group here locally uh, with everybody letting everybody know, everybody else know what's going on. And that's because a lot of these guys haven't discovered the DX cluster yet, and I'm going to uh, set about educating them after I finish educating y'all. So here's, a, here's, a, here's what we've basically got. The DX cluster used to be our DX uh, node, DX cluster, or... Uh, packet cluster, 
uh, people call it different stuff. But the DX cluster used to be a way for amateurs to let each other know via packet radio and a networking, kind of a networking program, kind of a big uh, chat room, what DX was out there, what the reports for WWV were to announce information of general amateur interest and that kind of stuff. Well, over the years, it's kind of evolved with the advent of the Internet. And now uh, the DX clusters can be reached via Telnet. And there are a lot of programs out there to do that with. So what are the advantages of using the DX cluster? Well, you have, well, at the time of this recording, the particular DX cluster that I use uh, is a hooked up to 67 nodes over the internet. That means there are 67 DX clusters hooked together around the world picking up spotting information from local amateur radio operators in those areas. And the total number of users, and this is in the middle of the day when I'm recording this, the total number of users at this time is 892 users around the world. So you can see that with so many people networked together via the internet packet radio, there are still some operating uh, VHF packet radio DX clusters. It makes it really easy to hunt down and pick off those uh, DX stations, whether they're it's something simple because you've just upgraded and the entire DXCC list is laid out before you, or you've been doing it for a while, and now you're hunting uh, some of that rarer stuff. So, let's uh, start off by the simplest means. I'm not going to discuss uh, software. Well, I'll discuss it a little bit towards the end. But this particular session, we're going to do it via Telnet. Because that way I can address the Linux users and the Windows users at the same time because it works basically the same way. So, if you are using Microsoft Windows, if you are using Microsoft Windows, open up a DOS screen or a terminal. And if you are using uh, Linux, open up your favorite terminal, terminal screen. Now, at the prompt, type in the word Telnet, T-E-L-N-E-T. You'll get a prompt which says Telnet. At this time, you'll have to put in the address of the DX cluster you want to connect to. Now, I use AB5K here in, well, down south in Holland, Texas, because the local DX cluster here at the University of Texas at Dallas up in Plano. You know, figure that one out. It's kind of like the Dallas Cowboys out of Arlington. And it doesn't, I'm, they're not real good about keeping it up and running. So I use AB5K down in Holland, Texas. So to connect to AB5K, I type dxc.ab5k dot net. Now, when I do that, 
if that's all I type in and I hit return, I get an invalid command. So you have to use the uh, the option IntelNet to connect to that particular uh, to tell it that you're trying to connect to a a telnet server. So in uh, with telnet in Ubuntu, which is what I'm using, you would type O followed by DXC AB5K dot net and hit return. Now, the difference between one of the differences between Windows and Linux is that the Telnet program in Linux defaults to port 23 on the other end. It will query port 23 on the remote computer and go in that way and some packet and we'll talk about ports more extensively in a few minutes but right now you, what you need to know is for AD, for dxc.ab5k.net the port is 2323 so we'll type in 23 so the line should read o space dxc dot ab5k dot net space 23 when you hit return it will connect now when you've connected being your first time it will ask you a few questions you will put it'll first ask you for your call sign which it'll do every time you log on after that if you're in the FCC database or the QRZ database then it will ask you a few questions and they'll be yes no question is your name such and such well I logged in a while ago as my father KB5, uh, KT5P who hasn't been on AB5K before so I could check this out and I logged him in as K, KT5P and then it came up is your name Billy yes no I hit yes and then it asked me are you in Mesquite Texas yes no and I hit yes, and we were ready to go. Had I hit no, it would probably ask what my name was and uh, what city I was in. And at the end of that particular, that first login, it's going to tell you to go back and set your uh, longitude and latitude at some point. That way, we have some information. So, we're going to jump off of the Linux machine for a minute and jump over to the... Uh, one Windows machine I have running in the house, which I close the uh, close the DOS screen on, and we're going to do the same thing via the Telnet client on on uh, this is Windows XP Pro. So at the DOS prompt or command prompt or terminal screen, whatever you call it, type Telnet and hit return. It'll come up. Welcome to Microsoft's Telnet client, escape character is control plus, whatever that's supposed to be, control, oh, I'm sorry, control bracket, and it will say Microsoft Telnet will be the prompt. With either, on either side, whether it's the Linux or the Microsoft, at the Telnet prompt, you can put in a question mark and it'll give you a short list of commands. So, when I put in the short list of commands for 
for or put in the question mark to get the short list of commands, I get a list that says close display open. Well, okay. So what we want to do is type O, which is open. And if we look at that list, over on the side it'll say connect to host name, default port is 23. So in the Microsoft client, the default port is 23. Uh, if you have to put the port in, then you'll probably need to put a space behind it and then the port number. Um, there have been times on Windows 2000 Pro when I was using a Telnet client that you used a colon in the port number, just like a uh, URL. So we'll type in uh, dxc.ab5k.net. Now, that's just his Telnet address. There's nothing special about that Telnet address other than it points to his computer. And since 23 is the port number at AB5K, and 23 is the default in Windows uh, Telnet client, then you don't even have to put in 23. You just hit return. And it goes straight there and asks you for your call sign. Once you log on, it'll give you a nice little hello. And then if you're using AB5K, like I'm using here, it'll say, Welcome to the AB5K AR cluster, Telnet, and then it'll give you some WWV information, the solar flux, the A index, the K index, and uh, if you're unfamiliar with those uh, variables, uh, go back into the archives. One of our earlier episodes, I spoke with a man about propagation and that kind of stuff, and it'll get you pointed in the right direction. And then it'll give you a little, little short. Uh, uh, to set the filters, and we'll get to that in a minute, uh, do such and such uh, since August 2007. You know, so he's processed 900,065 and X many spots anyway. So we'll get down to it. Now, at the simplest level, which is the way that I use it, the DX cluster most of the time, I just let it roll from there. Because what you're going to see on the screen is occasionally a line is going to come up on the screen. And in the Telnet's clients on Windows and on Linux, you're going to get a, a line of information come up on the screen ever so often. Now, that's people on other DX clusters around the world or however you've got the filters set putting information in. And the line will pretty much read something like DX, DE, and the call sign of the person that put it in, followed by a frequency, the call sign of the station that they're putting the spot on there for, you know, they heard, well, let's use TX5C, who's operating right now. Uh, we've got one here that says DX, DE, W0BCA, that's the person uh, announcing it. He is on 21024, which is the frequency. The call sign is TX5C. And then there's a comment line behind that, which is QSX21029.4. Very loud in Minnesota. Fo following that is the time it was posted. 
in UTC and where the spot came from state-wise. Sometimes you'll have that, sometimes you won't, sometimes you'll have a country. Uh, and it says MN, which is Minnesota. So I normally, myself, just let this rock and roll. And I can scroll down the list and take a look at what's going on as they report the spots. And in fact, since we... Uh, uh, went back over to the Linux here just probably about a minute or so ago. There have been four spots. One on 14, on one on 20 meters, one on uh, 18 megahertz, another one on 20 meters from different parts of the world. I've got the filters set up on my Linux machine right now so that I only see spots that are coming from stations in the U.S., but going back over here to the Internet Explorer machine, there are spots coming in from around the world. EA, Spain, Illinois, UR, the Ukraine, I believe that is, Tennessee, Ohio. So wide open with none of the filters set, you're going to get every spot that's put on the DX clusters anywhere around the world. Okay. So that's the basic end of it, and that's pretty much the way I use it most of the time because I'll just stick the DX cluster over in the quarter and let it run. And I have the advantage of having a KVM switch here, so switching between machines and doing stuff is not really a big issue. However, you may want to limit the information that comes off the screen, and there are ways to do that. Uh, if you type a question mark, and after you start getting spots, you really won't have a prompt down at the bottom of the screen, but just go ahead and type a question mark. You'll get a list of the commands that are available at the top level on the DX cluster. Now, all these menus are, are well, not really menus, but lists are multi-level. So if you need more information on a command, if you'll type help followed by the command name, then you'll be able to get more information on what's going on with it. So uh, the main command I want to take you all to is the show command. Any, command any, any information you want to see, you have to use the show command to access it. Any parameters you want to set on the DX cluster for yourself, you have to use the set command. These are probably the two main commands other than the DX command, which is when, the one that you use to announce a station that you will use. So the top three are DX, set, and show. So Let's do the show first because show is going to be much more helpful to you than anything else. So if you type H-E-L-P-S-H-O-W and hit return, then you'll get a list of commands that allow you to, that you can use under the show command. It's quite extensive. The one that I use most often it would be show forward slash stroke 
whatever y'all call it, down there close to the shift key, show DX. Now, when you do that, what's going to happen is the cluster is going to send you back a list of the last handful of uh, spots that have come across the cluster. Now, I, I believe that something is configurable. I haven't really fooled with it. Y'all spend some time exploring the menus. And what we get is a list, and this is like in the last 20 minutes, and there's probably 25 spots here, maybe 30, and they're from all different places. They're mostly TX5C out there on that atoll. But there's some others mixed in, V25OP, uh, KH7XS, different kind of stuff. Now, the benefit of this is you get the frequency along with what's going on, and you can go dial them, dial them down, and sometimes over in the comment field, you'll get some helpful information. You know, like if they're transmitting or receiving on a different frequency than they're transmitting, running split, or let me see what else is here. Uh, TX5C14185 is their receive free, their uh, transmit frequency. They're listening on 14255 in the very strong in Tennessee. This is from W4KHC. We go up a little further, and there's a guy asking about Riddy with that particular station. There's a New Hampshire station reporting that they're 59 in New Hampshire, and there seems to be a heavy storm. So there's a lot of information that comes across the cluster. Now, if you wanted to post a spot on the cluster, you would use the DX command. Okay, the DX command is pretty simple. If you hear a station on there you want to report to the cluster, then you would get on, you would uh, reach down to your keyboard and you would type it DX followed by the frequency followed by the call sign, followed by whatever comments you wanted to add to the end. And you can add probably 40, 60 characters on the end as a comment. And then when that comes up, it'll come up in the format that I've previously told you about. And this is the way it works. We all help each other out. We pick off some at Rare DX. We get us some paper for our wall. We enjoy amateur radio. That part of it's pretty easy. And once again, if you need help with DX, with the DX command, type help space DX. Now, one of the things about the show command is that it can be abbreviated. We're back to the show command again. I'm sorry about this. The thing about the show command is it can be abbreviated. So you can put SH, forward slash, stroke, whatever you call it, and then whatever parameter you want to set. Now, our show, it's like if I put in SH stroke filters, F-I-L-T-E-R-S, okay, and I hit return, I'll get a list of what filters I have set. And filters are a way to narrow down what you see coming in from the DX cluster. If you only want to see... Uh, spots that are posted from U.S. stations, you would set the uh, spot origin to pass only K. 
So if I wanted to show more than just US, I would go ahead and type in K comma VE. That would show me spots originating in the US and Canada. If I wanted to see spots originating in the US, Canada, and Mexico, it would be K comma VE comma XE. So it's uh, it's pretty easy to, to see how this is going on, and it's not complicated. And actually, some of the programs you can get to do this are pretty helpful. So we've, we've done that, and if we want to see what filters we have set, we can always type in SH stroke filters, and SH stroke filters will show us what filters we have set. So we've pretty much briefly gone over uh, actually using the base end of the DX cluster. Now let me talk a couple minutes about uh, about software before we before we head on out of here this time. There are a lot of logging programs out there which not only uh, save program or save information in a way that it's easily uploaded to things like Logbook of the World or um, what is that, EQSL, if you use that kind of stuff. Uh, I have posted some of my logs on Logbook of the World, but I do not use EQSL because I'm one of those that I like to have that paper in my hand, and an EQSL can be faked very easily. However, we're talking about DX cluster, and that information, those same uh, logging programs, a lot of times will have a DX cluster client built into them. I used to use one on Windows, which was called XM Log, and XM Log not only would check QRZ for inf for the information on the contact, would not only save my stuff in a format where I could upload it to uh, Logbook of the World if I felt the need. But it also had a, a DX cluster client, which not only would show me the spots in a uh, a written or tablature uh, readout, it also had a little bar graph that you could configure and watch uh, where the spots were on the band. On Linux, I used a program called Klog, which is very similar in uh, a lot of respects it's not exactly the same but it does have a telnet or a uh, dx cluster client in it i also use a program called xdx which is simply a dx cluster program and nothing else and every once in a while i'll run one which is the linux equivalent of a dos program that runs in a terminal screen called color dx when i want a little color uh, Take your time, look around. You can probably find you some uh, find you a program that'll work well for you. Uh, if you prefer to use the DOS prompt or uh, a tel uh, well use the Telnet client under DOS prompt or terminal screen, that'll probably work out for you really well. Also, I find that right there to be uh, more pleasing because when I really get down to operating HF, I've been uh, I go back to doing it the way that I'm most comfortable, which is the DX cluster up on the screen of the computer and a spiral notebook laying on the desk writing down the information. And then I transpose it all later. I know it sounds like double work, but 
even though I am, you have to understand I have to do a few things to comfort myself because I don't have a radio that uh, glows orange, warm and orange in the in the dark anymore. Uh, because you can't hardly get those old tube radios. I'm I'm big on the nostalgia thing, and y'all don't get me wrong. I'm not a big time DXer. I was I call myself a casual DXer because uh, some days I want to just talk to some foreign lands, and sometimes I don't want to talk across the street. So I hope that we've included enough information in this particular uh, segment to get y'all started on the DX cluster. It's like I said. There are lists out there that uh, you can go to and find uh, our web pages where you find a list of DX clusters and it'll point you to a DX cluster near you. I use the closest one so it cuts down on the transfer time through the internet. But one of the things also you have to remember is not all uh, DX clusters use the same port. So check in into it and see what port the uh, DX, the DX cluster you want to use uh, uses. Like I said, I use a 85K down there in Holland, Texas, and his is 23, and the program he runs, the default is 23. Some of them are different. I've heard of them on 4000 and some others. So check into that. Go use the DX cluster and have yourself a lot of fun. I want to hear about everybody working those DX contacts that they're picking up off the cluster. So we're at the end of this segment, and once again, y'all go out there and heat up their ways, and we'll be right back after the break.
you go. That brings us uh, almost to the end of another episode of Resonant Frequency, the Amateur Radio Podcast. I hope y'all found the stuff involved in uh, this particular episode, the stuff we put forward, the information we've given to you, to be helpful and useful. Let me make a quick announcement. Uh, It just came to my attention a while ago that... uh, on May on uh, March 22nd, and I believe that's a I believe that to be a Saturday. Uh, it'd be Radio in the Park over in Mesquite, Texas. Uh, the amateur radio operators over here have uh, developed a fondness for operating HF radios out at uh, one of the parks here, Pascal Park, which is just about uh, right across 635 from the rodeo out here. And any of you guys in the DFW area or find yourself coming through the area on that weekend, drop on by and uh, give us a holler. Um, You can uh, send me an email if you need a little more information at kb5jbv.gmail.com or at Uh, gmail.com. And those of you that are in the area headed that direction, you can get on the 145.310 repeater with a tone of 162.2, and somebody ought to be able to guide you on in. Okay, uh, we just had a last-minute donation come in a while ago. I want to thank uh, David in New York City. Thank you, David, uh, for uh, throwing that our way. So that right there goes to show every dollar helps, and... Uh, if all you can afford to send uh, send as a donation is a dollar, we sure appreciate it. And uh, David definitely uh, sent more than a dollar. <laughs> okay, with that, I'd like to thank uh, Iota Promo Net for some of the music that we've used on the uh, uh, podcast this time around. The uh, intro and the exit music are from over at... Uh, over at Podsafe Audio. Either one of those sites would be wonderful to uh, go take a look at. Uh, links to the three songs from over at the IOTA Alliance or IOTA Promo Net will be on the blog page at kb5jbv.blogspot.com. And while you're there, consider leaving a donation or uh, at least if you're going to buy a video or a book, click on through to Amazon from our page because every little bit helps. With that, I think we've pretty much got everything covered. It looks like I come as close as I've ever come, or as close as I've come recently, to getting this thing under an hour. I see I just just passed the hour mark, so let me go ahead and, uh, and shut her down. Y'all all have a have a good month, and we'll see y'all when it comes time for the next episode. So take care of your families and 73 from Balt Springs, Texas.